I'm Susan Barrett. And I'm Todd Thomas. At Barrett Barrera Projects, we believe that art is a verb. It's the ongoing process of deconstructing and reconstructing our world. This season, we'll delve deep into the creative process of some of our most inspiring friends and collaborators to understand how they're navigating this pivotal moment and working to transform our existing systems, reimagine the status quo, and support each other across disciplines in order to create a more sustainable and equitable future for us all. Welcome to Art as a Verb, a Barrett Barrera project. In this episode, we're speaking with Dario Calmis, a Renaissance man working across the disciplines of art, fashion, photography, and academia, who just made history as the first black photographer to shoot the cover of Vanity Fair. Dario's show, Amongst Friends, about his friend and muse, Lana Turner, showed at our own Projects Plus gallery in St. Louis. Dario's deep and thoughtful approach to fashion is imbued with intentionality, and his show direction for fashion brand Pierre Moss has been consistently regarded as Best Show of Fashion Month. He is also host of his own podcast, The Institute of Black Imagination. Dario, it's a pleasure to speak with you today. Thank you for being here. Sure, sure, sure. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. You've been identified as a slasher. <laughs> what? Oh I'm not that dangerous. <laughs> what, what does that mean? I, I, I think I have an idea. I mean, looking at your bio, there's a lot of, of stuff that you do. And I'm curious to hear about what that is. Uh, I think maybe something that doesn't sound so violent would be maybe a, maybe like a multi-hyphenate. Uh-huh. Or maybe like a old school renaissance man. But yeah, I, I'm just essentially curious. And there are certain mediums that have just kind of caught my attention and I've run with them. So starting out on stage as a performer, so singing, dancing, acting, then moving into photography, but having a real interest in like scholarship and academia. And so that kind of pivoted into writing and then via photography, fashion, directing, fashion shows. And then as my own personal desire for expression kind of birthed itself, moved into the fine art space. So as both a fine artist and a curator. That's what slasher means? <laughs> yeah. Because I think, like, I, re- I, think yeah. I remember back in the day, a slasher was something very different. But um, Todd, what do you remember slasher being? I don't know. I mean, this was just a phrase that was sort of like, you know, given in, in, in you know, the in the bio breakdown for, for Dario. And it, it struck me as like, and as, as as funny and interesting, so I think it's sl- yeah, it's like like director slash artist slash this <laughs> slash that. So Dario, how do you, with that being said, and you know the overview of like everything that you do, and I completely relate to that because I find it hard to sort of like specifically define so clearly and concisely what it is that I do. How do you answer that age old question? You know, what do you do? Yeah, I say I'm an artist, writer, director, and brand consultant. Even though it actually is is a bit more than that, those encompass at least most of it in terms that people could understand. Right. And is that important for people to understand what you do? It's not important for me, but it seems to be very important (laughs) for them. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I've been myself. (laughs) since I've known myself, but you know, people love, 
I shouldn't even say people love. There's just a human desire to compartmentalize. And I don't mean that in any kind of derogatory way, but just to identify, you know, people want to symbolize you in some way. And so if I said like I was a visual director, people would be like, but what does that exactly mean? Like, you mean like creative director? Aha, aha, because words are literally just agreements people make between themselves to stand for something. Mm -hmm. So that's it. Right. Do you feel like that has the idea of a multidisciplinary person gotten easier for people to comprehend in your career as you move on? Have you noticed any particular shift or are people still? I think it's getting easier because of technology um, and because of like social media. People have had to acquire multiple skills just to kind of, you know, survive. Mm -hmm. Like I remember I was doing a show at a gallery here in New York and we were like trying to get the programs together and the gallery director like went back in the office and like did all this stuff and like in design, but then it wasn't working. So then she like went into like another program and like printed it. And I just was like, there was a time I bet when a gallerist could just be a gallerist, but I had to be a gallerist slash, you know, word processor slash amateur videographer for the social channel. Like, so I think now we're being called generalist, right? Meaning mm -hmm. that we can kind of move in multi, you know, many ways. But growing up or coming up as a photographer, people really wanted to put you in a box. Like they really wanted to understand you. Like even as a performer, you know, I was trained to be as equally proficient as a singer, as a dancer, and as an actor. And whichever was worse or, you know, you weren't strong, um, whatever you were not strong in, you wanted to, you know strengthen that but even when i got to new york people would say like uh yeah but like you're more like a singer actor dancer right than more like a dancer actor singer or, or you're more like an actor singer dancer and i'm like uh i can do all three like mm -hmm. that's what i'm here for right so also i think the good news about you know the way we operate today is we transmit ourselves we're more reliant on on ourselves more than other people Absolutely. I'm kind of more empowered because of that. So with all of these uh, different genres, what is it? What, what's at the core of each one of them that makes them interesting to you? Uh, I think the through line is storytelling. Hmm. Not all mediums allow for the same kind of storytelling. They each have their strengths, right? You know, so if you're thinking about photography, what you're really playing with is time, like the stopping of time, which is really kind of a trick, right? Because as we are living our lives, nothing stops. So with photography, it's really about like, uh, what does... Um, Cartier-Bresson says, the decisive moment, mm -hmm. right? So it's about, so you're really playing with time with photography and also time as it relates to like generational time moving forward. So for example, a friend of mine at Magnum Photos says, we don't know if a picture is good until 20 years later. Mm. <laughs> so a lot of times they don't even accept a work that's like less than 20 years old because not only stopping time, but time itself informs the image. So it's kind of cooking in a way. Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, video, you're, you're using motion. If it's a, a fashion show, you're using, you know, like the live experience fashion, you're playing with emotion, like emotion in that moment. So then you can bring in, you know, music and all of these things to kind of guide people through, uh, you know, an art 
exhibition is a bit more reflective, a lot more projective. So people are really bringing themselves into that space and wrestling, you know, with those internal dialogues that this external thing is prompting. Dario, in your fashion-related work, you've worked with different people, Laquan Smith, Pyre Moss, you do work with the CFDA. I'm just curious, I've seen some of the fashion projects you work on, and they're all really inspiring and uplifting. And I'm just curious, with in the trajectory of your career, my experience has been that the world of fashion has been unkind and elitist and, you know, really kind of difficult. And I'm I'm just curious, I see people like you doing things and other people doing things that is a complete shift from that, which makes me hopeful. I'm just curious about your experience in this sort of like exclusivity area of fashion and art as far as that goes and mm -hmm. how that's been for you personally on, you know, a personal level and kind of on a level of like thinking about equality that we're faced with now. Mm -hmm. I would say... Yes, fashion does have threaded within it notions of exclusivity, elitism, you know, just sheer expense. But really, there's multiple levels to fashion. So I should probably say this. There's a difference between fashion with a capital F and fashion with a lowercase f. And I'm interested in fashion with a lowercase f. Because there is the fashion system mm -hmm. and the fashion industry. Right. And then there's fashion. You know, mm -hmm. like Susan, you know, you love fashion because you love to express, right? It is an right. outward expression. It is, it is your own art form in a way, right? It is the art of expression. And for me, that's fashion with the lowercase f. That's fashion on the ground. And then there's fashion with a capital F which is, you know, Karl Lagerfeld doing a $5 million show in Paris with, you know, a clump of people outside and they can't get in, but there's nothing happening on the inside that's really worth talking about on the outside, nor has anything to do with what's really happening on the outside. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it's fashion with a lowercase f that I uh, integrate myself with. I don't put much energy into the other side of it. And I found particularly like even working with the CFDA, there's so many people behind the scenes that make fashion work that are so much more interesting, so much more humane, and they work really hard and they fucking love it. You know, mm -hmm. like they don't need to have their faces, you know, on the cover of a magazine or being featured. They just loved the actual craft of the thing. Mm -hmm. And those are the people you know, that I love. Mm -hmm. Now, I will also say that fashion itself, the system, can't be divorced from its colonial history right. and its colonial past. And so a lot of that informs the way that fashion operates now. So that's how you continue to have, quote unquote, cultural appropriation. The mm -hmm. system is literally built on cultural appropriation. Right. It was conquered lands and the things they brought back and the court. We also can't separate the court from fashion. You know, Marie Antoinette, 
these things all inform the system that we all inherited and it continues to perpetuate it. So when you think about like the French court and French aristocracy and being a good graces with this Duke and that countess and, you know, how close you sat to the king and the espionage and, you know, and the gossip, it sounds like the fashion industry right now. Right. Totally. (laughs) That's why it is what it is. And so me, uh, in a way, working with designers, particularly designers of color, because we already sit outside of that system, mm-hmm. we're able to kind of uh, usurp it and not have to deal with the back and forth of the bullshit. But I always say I work around fashion. I don't work in fashion. Nice. And there is also the transformative nature of fashion, which is what is my favorite thing about it, which is like, you know, about your kind of storytelling also. Mm-hmm. And there's the fun aspect of it. You know, it's like, I understand what you're saying with the capital F and the lowercase F. But when I think of like fashion through in history, I go way back to Cleopatra and Mm -hmm. which I'm sure there were political ramifications and systems within Cleopatra, but fashion itself was storytelling. I'm assuming because art itself was storytelling before language. And so mm-hmm. if art was storytelling, then so was how you're dressing. So was that, I'm sure, conveyed um, conveyed messages and, and continues to do as in different uniforms and different aspects of who you are. I want to know a little bit about If fashion and what you're doing is all about storytelling, what is the story that you are telling, that you personally are telling? There must be a thread of that story. That's a really great question. Um, Really quickly, circling back uh, on Cleopatra, even that, Cleopatra was a queen. Yeah. You know? But what about the subjects? Yeah, Cleopatra was a luxury brand. Well, sure. (laughs) You know, but what about the subjects? Uh, And what were they allowed to wear? I believe it was, I could be totally wrong, but I think like in the Bolshevik Revolution, or maybe the French Revolution, a revolution, one of their demands was to be able to wear the color red. Hmm. Like, you know what I mean? So that's what I mean. Cleopatra for me still fashion with a capital F because it is a form of expression that not everyone was able to access. But the story that I'm telling, it's a tough one. Uh, the story that I'm telling personally mm-hmm. is one of black excellence and black beauty and black intelligence and wisdom, mainly because I was not exposed to it growing up, hmm. going to a very American high school You know, I read Wuthering Heights like everyone else in high school. You know, I read Great Expectations like everyone else in high school. No one taught me about James Baldwin or Zora Neale Hurston or Alma Thomas or Jeffrey Holder or even Gordon Parks, you know. And so subconsciously somewhere that system was telling me that I was none of these things. Yes, I could relate to it on a human level. So I, I wasn't, you know, I'm not walking around like, why don't I see myself in Wuthering Heights? Um, you know. Who wants but to? Once you have that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, Great Expectations, though. I do love Great Expectations. Miss <laughs> Havisham is my jam. Oh. But, you know, but then you have access to a whole breadth 
of people who look like you and uh, I can't even say think like you because human beings kind of generally think the same way. And so that's really the story I'm telling is just a documentation. I don't ever want a young black or brown person to not know that, you know, a lot of Turner existed. I don't want them to not know that a Thelma Golden existed or a Diedrich Brackens or, you know, a Soli Sisse or a Hank Willis Thomas. So a lot of my work is really kind of archival in a way, just to ensure that future generations don't forget. And I didn't even say forget because it's really about making sure that these names continue to permeate history moving forward and not necessarily the version of history that's taught to them. Quickly, Dario, a point of clarification for the listeners who might not know. Lana Turner is um, an amazing woman, a muse of, and friend of yours that you met and a uh, subject of, your, of a beautiful series of photographs that was in a show at one of Susan's spaces. So you should feel free, everyone, to like look that up. It's beautiful, beautiful pictures of a really amazing woman. Um, I wanted to bring up that you grew up in my hometown, and uh, we share St. Louis, which it's just a uh, a ripe place of uh, all kinds of interactions of histories. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I was wondering if in terms of fashion and beauty and um, exploding outside the norm, two people that we have uh, who also grew up in, in St. Louis are Tina Turner and uh, Josephine Baker, mm-hmm. both of which command amazing beauty or without fear of, of what the norm is and pushing boundaries of the norm. I wonder, how do they fit into your DNA? Mm, you know, I, I, I don't know. And, and when I speak about like my high school and the way that I grew up, I think St. Louis was an amazing place to grow up. And I felt like I had access to so much and so much art mm. and culture and like just performance from, you know, the Muni to the Fox to, I mean, even the Black Rep, which has yeah. been in St. Louis, I mean, for a very long time. So St. Louis as a city, particularly as it comes to the arts and accessibility, because most of these things are free or are free at some level is, you know, is amazing. Um, as it pertains to like Josephine Baker and Tina Turner and also Chuck Berry and shit. Tennessee Williams and Phyllis Diller, Donna Hathaway, um, Agnes Moorhead, <laughs> you know, Catherine Dunham, mm-hmm. um, yeah, Joyner Kersey. Like, you know, the yeah. list goes on yeah. and on. And so, if anything, you know, hopefully, I can't say the history books will. Hopefully, I'm in conversation with these other greats, you know, in St. Louis. And, you know, what's interesting. There's something about St. Louis because Missouri, you know, the Mason-Dixon line runs right through it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, storms only take place when hot and cold fronts meet. Right. So that's why I think a place like St. Louis or even Missouri is always such a hotbed for so much because you're really existing in this liminal space between like, you know, freedom and entrapment in a way. And so that's where a lot of, uh, you know, who says this? Um, Nietzsche says that only out of chaos can a star be born. So I think maybe that's my answer. With the different companies that you work with and the different kind of 
consulting jobs that you do, mm-hmm. you talk about um, having a visual language and creating mm. visual language. What does that mean for those f- when you are making that for somebody else? Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that? Yeah, sure. What I'm really doing when I work with a brand, particularly in the very beginning, is I just do a really deep dive into the brand ethos. And I found, uh, maybe kind of right out of grad school, that I could actually learn a brand's language. I mean, a brand has its own vocabulary that it works with, and that it's something that I can learn. Like, it is a learnable thing if you study it. And then what happens is then you start speaking the language, but it's filtered through you, right? So it's like me speaking French, but with an American accent. So I'm speaking it and you can understand it, but it still sounds like me but it also sounds like you. Mm -hmm. And so that's really like the visual language, not really like a chameleon aspect, but I'm just kind of exercising myself through the skin of this other brand. You know, and I love those collaborations because what it does is allow parts of me to come forward that perhaps I wouldn't have accessed otherwise, but then also really help a brand get to the place that they want to go. I mean, even before we had this, you know, conversation, I asked, you know, what, what's the story here? Like, what are we trying to say? Because for me that, you know, I love taking someone from where they are to where they want to be. Mm-hmm. That's a process I fully enjoy. And what ends up happening is we both grow in the process. Mm-hmm. It's a win-win. So even when I started working with Kirby at Pierre Moss, what we're doing now was nothing what I was doing before, but just by the sheer act of us being in the same space and the team being small enough, we both grew together. And that's really been beautiful. So, uh, so that's really the visual language is just clarifying, clarifying for a brand exactly who they are and what they want to be and how they exist in the world. I work really well with emerging brands. Mm-hmm. You know, about brand and brand identity, can you speak a little bit about the correlation of that identity with Black identity and with, like, the idea of social justice and how kind of, like, you know, we as, like, the, you know, us three talking here are in a position of privilege within the developmental process and that we are up front and making things and having and conceptualizing and having ideas. And how does that translate as it goes down, you know, through the different systems of fashion with a capital F to the supply chains and the labor and the people. I think that's a double question, Dario, about identity and black identity, and then about the effect of the larger picture. Hmm. Yeah, that's a complicated question. I'm not sure that I have the full answer. Because, uh, you know, like I said before, I really consider myself working around fashion Mm -hmm. and not necessarily in fashion. And so I, I'm not at the after parties. Like I don't go to fashion shows actually. Right. But what you've done with, you know, your work has been groundbreaking really. And, you know, thank you. So, I mean, you're associated with Pyre Moss, which is like, you know, the award winning, you know, best fashion show, you know, says Vogue and there's that up front, but does that come with the responsibility of the effects of what that is to the people down the line, to the consumer, to the viewer? Yeah, well, you know what's interesting, Todd, about that question is what we do at Pierre Moss, I don't think you can roll that into the larger 
question of fashion with a capital F because both Kirby, I mean, I can't speak for Kirby, but both Kirby and I really exist just outside of it. Uh, we're both two people who tried to do it the way it was supposed to be done, right? To be a part of the right organizations and to take the right meetings. And that was getting us nowhere, you know, uh, and definitely was a slow death. And so there came a point where we're like, let's just do whatever the fuck we want to do. And that pivot point happened with his kind of now infamous Black Lives Matter mm -hmm. show uh, in SS16, mm -hmm. where he showed 15 minutes of police brutality before the fashion show started. Right. And that really was the detour away from fashion with a capital F. Mm -hmm. What I find happens also with fashion with a capital F is it always misses the mark because it's too tied to the system of capital. You have to refuse the demands of capital in order to actually speak the truth. And what we are about is about telling the truth. Now, as that relates to identity, we found, and I think Kirby has found, that the more that we were ourselves and the more that we celebrated ourselves, interestingly enough, the more accepted we became but the thing was, is we weren't looking for acceptance in the fashion industry. We'd already tried that, which is like, fuck it. We're just going to do our own thing. Mm -hmm. And we did. And we, instead of skirting around our blackness, we became even blacker. <laughs> mm -hmm. And in that, an entire community of people who look and think and are us resonated with that. Because for the first time, they actually saw themselves fully represented and elevated it's the same thing that i did with the series with miss turner and the ways in which that relates to the black church just the life we're living is gorgeous just the lives we're living are worthy of being elevated in places of beauty and i can contrast that with andre leon talley who's also a really great friend of mine and a mentor but a lot of andre's uh i'll just say ways of being had to do with his proximity to power and whiteness. Mm -hmm. And even his most recent autobiography, he said that he's saying a lot of things he couldn't say for fear of one retribution and two messing up, you know, his own paycheck. Exactly. So that's the version of blackness that's existed in the fashion industry and many industries for a very long time. And people have been complacent with that too, on every level. Yeah. And so we're at a major pivot point. I mean, before now, I mean, I think really starting with, you know, Black Lives Matter, you know, and kicked off, I think, with Obama being in the White House, which is wonderful, because it was the first time we saw an actual black family in the spotlight that wasn't entertainment. The last time we had that was the Cosby show, and there were advertisers attached to it. Mm -hmm. so. I wanted to ask you about mm -hmm. your process, and essentially everything that you've been talking about feels like you're trying on the skin of a brand. You're an actor, you're a photographer, you're, in essence, you continue to become, or you're trying on the, the separate <laughs> costumes, no matter what the aspect of it is. So to me, that relates to being an empath. And I, mm -hmm. as an empath, what would happen is that you tend to not only try on, but you become, you take on the emotions of whatever it is that you're trying on and that can be exhausting and i'm wondering mm -hmm. does that resonate with you and if so how do you recharge how do you let 
how do you put up the barriers so that it doesn't continue to uh, be your problem or your feeling? How do you know what what's what? Susan, that is probably the best question I have ever been asked ever. Uh, the most insightful and intuitive question I've ever been asked <laughs> in my entire life. And that is so spot on. It's something that the Greeks call the defects of your attributes. And that is something that I've really had to learn mm-hmm. um, and most recently be conscious of it. So, you know, meditation is really helpful because that empathetic spirit works both in professional spheres and also personal, right? So I also take on the energies of people that I'm around. So I found the act of meditation is one that really allows me to be so full that I can actually share without losing myself, right? Without emptying myself. And before it would be this kind of full exchange, right? And it's interesting that even with brands, like I think what makes it work is I do take it on as my own, Mm -hmm. right? Like I take full ownership of everything. And that's also a wrestling, you know, because sometimes I have to step back and say, okay, wait a minute, this actually isn't even my brand. Like, why am I? (laughs) Why am I not sleeping, but the designer is asleep and I'm up? Like, come on. So it's, you know, like I said, it's the the defects of your attributes. It's both a benefit and a defect. But yeah, like, you know, meditation, um, just staying conscious about what I'm about. And it's been a practice. You know, it has been a practice over and over again. And I think I'm sort of kind of getting the hang of it now. Well, this is an exhausting time, too. So (laughs) absolutely. It is. And through your work, Jaria, you've shared critical observations of racialized, patriarchal and misogynistic parameters of fashion of the industry. Can you expand on how fashion could shift and provide a point of access for more diversity? What that future would look like? Uh, I mean, essentially, I think we just need more people of color in places of power with decision-making capabilities. Uh, Not a figurehead, not a token or a fop, um, but someone who can actually say, no, this is what we're doing, and then everyone else obeys. For, For me, a perfect example of that is current three covers of British Vogue, uh, led by Edward Inningful, who is a black queer man. And the stars of those covers are essential workers. You know, a black train operator, conductor in London, and North Irish nurse, a midwife, I'm sorry. And the third is uh, a grocery store worker who's Muslim, and she's in hijab. And for me, it's not Life magazine. It's not a cover of Time. It's not even New York Times. It's Vogue. And so to put those people on the cover of Vogue says that moving forward, to be in style is to be of service. To mm-hmm. be in style is to appreciate those people who make your everyday life possible. And that's a shift. You know, Anna Wintour's uh, revolutionary Vogue cover was putting a couture Christian Lacroix sweater with a pair of jeans. And that's fine, 
you know, because that was from, you know, that was the moment and that's the world in which she lived. But when you have an intersectionality that's at the top, you're able to really take a broader look at the zeitgeist and really define it. You know, it's the difference between having uh, Roberts on the Supreme Court and Sonia Sotomayor on the Supreme Court. And if I'm a black person or any person coming to that stand or coming into that courtroom, Sonia is going to give me a much more in-depth reading of the situation than John Roberts will. Why? Because she's had a much deeper understanding of just living, period. The world was not set up for her, right? The world was not designed with her in mind. And so there's a lot of pieces of herself that she's had to access and actualize that a straight white male could just coast through, right? So there's a level and a depth of humanity that she just brings to the table that this other person doesn't. It doesn't say he's any less valuable. It doesn't say he's any less humane. It's just an understanding of the difference. So that's what needs to happen. And unfortunately, I think, again, you know, a lot of people will have to lose their jobs or give them up in order for that to happen. And that's what they do not want to do. And so that's why nothing changes. It seems like a since we're going through such a huge change now, wouldn't that be nice if we came out of it on the other side, knowing that luxury isn't equated with money, but it's equated with caring and service, like what you're talking about. So that would be an amazing transformation and, and seeing that which is invisible, which are the things that make us all connected. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, and you know, and when, as I spoke about photography, earlier about it being about still like these images are just that like what jamie hawksworth who's the photographer did was freeze these people that you see every day and you pass you think nothing of Mm -hmm. and you just freeze them and you are forced to look at them and you're like oh my god like thank you you know and and for the moment that we're having now to be taking place after three months of self-reflection and us having to wrestle with ourselves without the distractions that we use to identify ourselves with, I think is, is beautiful. And I think Susan, like if there's any time for that to happen, it's now. Agreed. Or that, that, that would be possible. Yeah. Dario, a couple of short things in closing. Your dad was a pastor and the church brought you to your dear friend and one of your most important muses, Lana Turner. Mm -hmm. Are there elements of your work that are, beyond tactile or intellectual or psychological is oh yeah absolutely oh my god we're getting to all the good shit at the end (laughs) surprise surprise (laughs) uh no spirituality is you know what's so cool about it is that it's an ever-growing process and one can find galaxies in the smallest and most seemingly banal of things And so it's something that is being revealed to me more and more every day. And if anything, the things that I create, I hope it comes out. I hope it comes across. I'm not here to force anyone into any belief or even some kind of like spiritual experience. But knowing that it's there, if you are receptive to it, as far as like any definition goes say like you know christianity or buddhist or whatever there's definitely none of that i was raised uh as baptist 
But yes, I mean, there's absolutely a metaphysical conversation that I'm engaging with every day and wrestling with every day. Actually, actually not wrestling, actually easing into every day um, that I think comes across. You know, at the end of the day, I just want to bring people to themselves. That's it. It's so funny. The very beginning, we talked about identity. We talked about like me being a slasher, you know, compartmentalization. And so many people are existing in these predetermined roles that truncate their modes of expression, you know. And uh, if anything, I would hope to be able to be some kind of conduit to help people just access themselves. So when you're thinking about that, it makes all of these concepts of blackness whiteness class like it's it's like so basic and uh, unimportant that it's almost comical it's almost comical that we're even talking about this we could be much further along one last thing can you share three iconic images that are like you know in your mind that inspire work or are your work or three kind of iconic images that are close to your heart one from the past and one from the present, and if you could imagine one for the future? Uh, one from the past. There is a photograph that was taken in vogue by George Hoenigan Hune of uh, a swimmer and another woman, and it looks like they're sitting at the edge of uh, what's a diving board, but it's actually like I think it was like shot in a rooftop in Paris or something like that. Like it was, like a, it's like a total like optical illusion. And there's something about that image that stay, stays with me. You know, sometimes there are images that are just burned into your retina and somehow they're always kind of coming up. Um, one from the present? Hmm, I don't know. Um, I'm not too much inspired by contemporary culture, but I will say that I loved uh, Lizzo's cover on the cover of Rolling Stone, shot by David LaChapelle, which I thought was gorgeous. Also, I mean, those three images by Jamie Hawksworth, uh, the cover of British Vogue that I spoke of, mm -hmm. um, and an image of the future. Mm, I don't know. Will we have images in the future? I don't know. It's been a pleasure. This guy is like totally calling me to like come down and deliver these dresses. So I do have to run. Thank you, Dario. Of course, of course, of course. Thank you. Ciao. You've been listening to Art as a Verb, a Barrett Barrera project. If you like what you just heard, please be sure to rate, review, and share this episode on social media, via email, or by any other means. For more information on Barrett Barrera projects and to learn about upcoming projects and exhibitions, visit BarrettBarrera.com. That's B-A-R-R-E-T-T-B-A-R-R-E-R-A.com. -E -E Keep up with our podcast by subscribing for free in your favorite podcast app. Just search Art is a Verb. The Art is a Verb podcast is produced by Olu and Company and is edited by Jag and Detroit Podcasts. The music in this show is H.A.M. by Eloise and the Savoir Faire.